First Peter 4. So today we're going to continue. Um, it's hard to believe we started the third week of, of January in this five-chapter letter from Peter. Uh, we're in chapter 4 now, and so we are, we are seeing the end in sight, potentially. It's going to come, and uh, it's been a great study. Uh, let me just, I would just want to share with you just briefly kind of what I've been praying about. I've thought about once we finish First Peter, just taking a brief pause and, and doing a short Old Testament book, because we haven't been in the Old Testament for a long time, and been praying about Jonah, um, and kind of looking at Jonah and, and some great things in Jonah about God's sovereignty and, and about you can't outrun me, God says, oh, watch what I can do if you try to outrun me, and so there's some great things in there. And then likely we would uh, go back to Second Peter um, to kind of put those together. And so just kind of praying about those things. We're meeting as elders tomorrow night. We're going to kind of talk about that. So as we, as we begin today in, in this next part of chapter 4, we'll be in verses 7 through 11 today. Just as way of reminder, and I've done this a lot, but the recipients of this letter were the kind of Christ followers who were really having to rely on one another. They were under suffering, they were under persecution, and so there are some things that, that because the culture had forced its heavy hand upon them, that they turned and looked at one another, and there was a community that was formed together that was really beautiful in regard to this. I believe they're the kind of people that were likely similar to what the writer of Hebrews wrote to, another group of people. Um, where later on he talks about in Hebrews that they had lost their property and they were under some persecution. And so in Hebrews chapter 10, this is what the writer writes to those people who were under suffering, struggling with things. And he writes these words, let us hold fast together. This idea of community, let us do this. Not just you individually, but us corporately together. Let us do this. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And here's why we ought to do that. For he who promised is faithful. We hold fast to our faith, the promises of God. Why? Because he's faithful. The world's going to promise things, but the world's not faithful. Its word doesn't continue to move on, but God's word is certain and sure. And then he says, and let us consider in the midst of all of this how to stir up one another to love and good works. And then he says, not neglecting meeting together. And I think this is critical. As Peter writes to these people, as, as the writer of Hebrews is writing to a group of believers, he's reminding them, listen, this suffering you're under, the struggle, it's important that you meet together. That you're not out there kind of trying to figure this out on your own, but you are walking in community with one another. And he says, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some but encouraging one another all the day, watch this, as the day is drawing near. And this day is capitalized, pointing to the second coming of Jesus. We're going to talk about the second coming of Jesus today and how do we live in light of that. By way of introduction, just want to call our attention. Some of you may not be aware of this, but back in the 1980s, there was a dramatic shift in the evangelical church in America to where the shift was from pretty much leading up to that, most of the things that drove the evangelical church was good teaching of doctrine, and from the doctrine, drawing out principles, and knowing God, and, and then walking out of the doctrine, walking out, walking out of the theology in practical ways. There was a great shift in the evangelical church in the 80s toward going directly toward everything was driven by topics, and everything was driven by principles. 
Now, I'm for principles because I think principles are all through the Scripture. But I think principles have to flow out of doctrine and theology and the scriptural teaching because as they are pulled out of those and they were seen that way we know why what's behind God's sovereignty God's thinking in regard to those things and what happened in the church was is a lot of those churches who went this shift and some of them were very very famous held conferences and people went to them they found out after 25 years of just doing topics here's what they discovered and you and I will go duh they discovered that nobody knew the Bible. They didn't, people didn't know the Scripture. And so they had to revamp everything they did because they, they got to a place where people lived by topical thinking and principle living instead of knowing God and from that walking in the principles that, are, that come out of the text from knowing God. So Peter's going to talk about that today. He's going to talk about a very big doctrinal thing. He's not going to give some details on it. He's just going to call our attention to it. And then he's going to say, here's how to live in light of this big reality that Jesus Christ is going to come again. And he's going to call them to sit first with God, get perspective, and then there's some things to do as we sit with them and as we walk with them in a relationship. And so let's look at the text this morning, 1 Peter chapter 4, and we will be 7 through 11. <clears throat> the end of all things is at hand, Peter writes. Therefore, two things you need to do. You be self-controlled and sober-minded for this purpose, for the sake of your prayers. You've got to be those two things. And then he says, above all, Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ... And to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen, right? <clears throat> so here's what Peter wants to establish for us. And again, writing to a group of believers who've been undergoing suffering, he's called their attention. We looked so much in chapter 3. Jesus is the ultimate example of suffering. From his suffering brings this great glory. Believers walk through suffering and struggle. They look to Jesus as the model. Great victory and great glory comes for our trust in walking in faithfulness. And now he begins to carry it a little bit further. And he's, he's a little bit more practical in regard to here's how you live out your life. But he establishes this thing. He, he calls them to remember it's not always going to be this way. You're not always going to live under the heavy hand of Nero. Jesus is going to come back. It could be in your lifetime. But, <clears throat> but if he doesn't come back, <clears throat> excuse me, this is what you get when you live with teenagers for a few days all day long in Arlington, Texas. <clears throat> I may have some puberty moments this morning with my voice, so just bear with me today, all right? <clears throat> all right, here we go. So, yeah, thank you, Mark. <clears throat> So he's, he wants to remind them, listen, it's not always going to be this way. There are two great rescues. One is Jesus is going to come back, and when he comes back, he raptures his people, and his people are with him. And when death comes, if even death comes in suffering, 
you get to be with Jesus. No matter what, it, everything is gain if you are a follower of Jesus. And so he's going to call us now in light of, thank you, <clears throat> in light of all of the things that are connected to the coming of Jesus, how should we live? So let's look at the text. Look at verse 7 with me. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, here's what you should do. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for this purpose, for the sake of your prayers. Christ is coming back to the earth. And in his second coming... He will come with great glory and power. It's not going to be hidden in Bethlehem. He's going to come. It will be seen in the greatness of His glory and the power of who He is. And it will be incredibly visible at that time. This is not the first time Peter has been calling us to live our lives in regard to the second coming of Jesus. Go back to chapter 1 just for a second. Let me just show you several of those. He has three of them in chapter 1. Look at verse 5. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Look at verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, pointing to the coming of Jesus. Look at verse 13 of chapter 1. Therefore, preparing your minds for action. He calls us, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter, all through this, writing to these group of people, struggling under the heavy hand of Nero. Nero spies are everywhere. He is reminding them, Jesus is coming back. And so look to that. Know this great reality. And knowing this will give you a perspective in regard to the things that you're dealing with and walking with. This is not a new theme in the New Testament as well. Jesus spoke about his second coming. The other writers did as well. And this idea of to live in light of his coming is mentioned several places. Here's one, 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Titus chapter 2 verse 11 and following says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. And here's what it does. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. It transforms our lives that we've come to faith. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And then he says, waiting for our blessed hope that's connected to the coming of Jesus. Look at 2 Peter just for a second. Turn over Second <clears throat> Peter chapter 3. Let me show you something there. About living in light of Christ's coming. Peter is going to remind this group of people he writes to again. In chapter 3 verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens, speaking of the future. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So now he's going to say, in light of what's coming in the future, how do you live now? Look at 11, 2 Peter 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening 
the coming day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. So here, here's what I want to do. <clears throat> we're going to spend probably the majority of our time with this first principle, and then we're going to talk about some things, because this is the foundational thing. He says, listen, because Christ is coming again, there is a perspective in how you ought to live your life. How do we live in regard to knowing that he is coming again? And the first principle is this. Coming out of this doctrinal aspect, it's this, is live with an awareness of time. Live with an awareness of time. So here, here's what he says. The end of all things, all things, creation, people, nations, man's purposes, man's ways, the end of all things is at hand so there is to be a mindset with us to recognize that there's something about now in the time that you and i live that should make us have a sense of urgency that jesus is coming again now we have to ask the question and kind of deal with this what does that mean that the end of all things is at hand is that going to happen on this Sunday afternoon, is it going to happen in a couple of hours? Is it going to happen while we're here? Well, I guess that's a possibility. But it's been a long time waiting, so we have to ask a, a few questions and one big one. Were the New Testament writers wrong in their perspective? Because they write, Paul writes about it, James writes about it. Were they wrong in to say, okay, it's at hand now, it's about to come? <clears throat> I don't think they were wrong. I think we don't fully understand what they mean because what Peter is talking about, what the others are writing about, is that there is a fulfillment that has come that Jesus came and died on the cross. He rose again. And these are the days. These are the days where the fulfillment of His coming, the rescue and the giving of salvation has come. And so let me just deal with these just for a moment. The first one is this. Were they wrong? Because after all, it's been 2,000 years. Has the church not been saying for 2,000 years, hey, He's coming again? And Peter actually is going to deal with this. I can't remember if it's the next chapter in chapter 5. But in one of the epistles here, he's going to talk about that there, there were scoffers just saying, y'all have been saying this for a long time. And that was just in Peter's lifetime. Y'all have been saying, Peter, that Jesus is coming and he's not coming again. I think for them, for the New Testament writers, if you'll just kind of come with me for a moment in your mind, I think it was really hard for them to think about this. They had lived with Jesus. They'd seen him, talked with him, lived with him, heard him speak. And he says, listen, I'm going to go away and I'm going to come back. And I think for them, they, they had this idea of it was hard for them. He's going to go away. He's going to come back. Acts chapter 1, he, you know, they asked him. They were wrestling with this early on before he's even ascended. Are you going to restore the kingdom now? Are you going to restore Israel now? And they have this idea of, of this. And he's like, no, listen, you know, and he's already told them, look, I'm going to go away. When I go away, it's good for you to do that because I'm going to send the Spirit. So for them, they struggled with the reality of they were with Jesus, lived with Jesus. And for them, there was an imminent desire and expectation. What did they want him to do again? They wanted him to come back. They wanted to see. Can you blame them for that passionate desire? They had been with him and they knew the glory. Now they're filled with the Spirit. And what do they want? They want to see Jesus again. So I think their expectation, even though he did not return in their lifetime at the end of the first century there was an expectation even for them that drove them to have a passionate desire in light of the second coming of jesus 
to walk in holiness and godliness before the Lord. So they were not wrong. So another perspective of what does this at hand means, another perspective is for every one of us at hand to be in the presence of Jesus, it really is at hand. It could happen this afternoon. We're all going to die. We're not going to get to live forever in regard to um, unless we're, we are raptured and we're taken off the earth. And so there's an aspect of that. But if that doesn't happen, we're going to die. And so there's in a sense of the coming of Jesus is near in regard to time in regard to that. And thirdly, I, this is what I think the, of what the writers are writing about. There's a fulfillment that has come. Peter spoke it on the day of Pentecost. Let me just read a few verses, Acts chapter 2. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So Peter, on that day, walks out on the streets. He stands up. Thousands of people are listening. He quotes Joel and says, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And he talks about more. So he speaks there about in the last days, this is what was going to happen and take place. I want you to look one with me. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, just for a moment. <clears throat> so we're an- trying to answer this question. What does it mean the end of all things is at hand? What does that mean, at hand? Paul writes something unique here that really defines for us and helps us understand what this meaning is. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, look there. Says, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instructions. Look what he says, on whom the end of what has come? The end of the ages has come. So Paul is saying, listen, you are a New Testament church. You are living in the era, in the time frame, in regard to the fulfillment of God's purpose and plan in salvation in Jesus, on whom the end of ages has come. Hebrews 1, let me remind us what it says. Long ago at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, in this era, in this time, the fulfillment is coming in this. God has spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed the heir of all things and through whom He created the world. So this idea of at hand, God is ready and present. And that's really what this means when you look at it in the Greek. God is ready and In his sovereignty, when he decides, now is the time to bring this next phase of my my fulfillment of salvation in regard to the second coming or the rapture. And he says, listen, here it is. This is a a coming event that almost as if it's so true, it's so real, it's as if it is already happening Because we know it's going to happen, and so therefore we know it can happen at any moment. So we live in light of that with a sense of urgency and expectation. So it's this idea, there's a consummation that has come, and so we live as if the day is at hand. He's coming today, and when you and I know that, you and I live differently. I don't know how you are. Um, I think pretty good under pressure at the last... Anybody... uh, some of you, you did your papers like well in advance. I was not one of those people. I kind of liked the, the pressure of the time frame that the paper had to be done because there was a, a focus that came to my life at that point in time. I don't recommend that, students, but anyway, um, it's, I think it's better to prepare ahead of time. But there's, a, there's an aspect of that that I think for us is true. Knowing, knowing 
that all of this is imminent should lead us to live differently every day. What if he came back today? What do we want to be doing if he comes back today? If he comes back 10 years from now, what are we going to be doing on that day 10 years from now when he comes back? So the idea is there's a consummation of all this. The end of all things is at hand as if they are already happening because they are so true and they are going to happen at some point in time. So you and I ought to live lives recognizing there's been a fulfillment of things and it should impact the way we live. <clears throat> the way we live. Let me just share a few other verses. Just listen to these. Romans 13, 12. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on armor of light. Philippians 4, 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. James 5, 8. You also be patient. Establish your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. James says. 1 John 2.18, children, it is the last hour, John writes. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. So there's a perspective of all of this that calls us to live in such a way that gets at this is the last hour in regard to living with a sense of urgency knowing that Jesus is coming back. Matthew chapter 25, there are 10 virgins. What were they supposed to do? They're waiting and waiting and waiting. What are they supposed to do with their lamps? Supposed to trim them, be ready. The bridegroom comes back, there's this announcement, and some of them are ready and some of them are not ready. And the ones that weren't ready, they are shut out and they're asking, hey, can you give me some oil? They didn't bring, they weren't prepared. So the idea is, Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. Christ's death, his resurrection has brought a consummation, a fulfillment of things. And so therefore, what do we do? We live with a sense of urgency. I hope it's not another 2,000 years that he doesn't come back. But if it is, you know what the church has to do for the next 2,000 years? Live with a sense of urgency. Live ready that Jesus is going to come back at any point in time. You know what our urgency is like sometimes, though? I thought about this this week. I was thinking, gosh, do I, how, do I, how do I live with this sense of urgency? Do I live with this sense of urgency? And I think for us, because it's been 2,000 years, I think there's been at times that the church has lived like this. You can look with me. Go to Matthew chapter 26 just for a moment. <clears throat> Here's what our urgency looks like sometimes. Matthew 26, 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to the disciples, sit here while I'll go over there and I'm going to pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Now just look at this for a moment. Three guys are seeing Jesus be sorrowful and troubled. And 38, it says, so he said to them, listen, my soul is very sorrowful. It's so sorrowful, it's even to death is what my sorrow is like. So I want you to remain here with me, and I want you to watch. Here's his instruction. I am sorrowful. I feel I'm, the heaviness on my life is so strong, I feel like I'm going to die. And we know the stress is so great. Luke records in the garden, he sweated what? 
drops of blood. That's a condition of, of such physical stress that the capillaries burst and there's blood that comes out. And Jesus is so stressed. And so he says to these guys, I want you to watch. I want you to deserve. I want you to have an expectancy. Be ready. So he goes away and he pours his heart out. And look what it says in 38, 39. And going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed, My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came back to his disciples and he found them what? What were they doing? They were sleeping. He goes away again, pours his heart out. They come back again. What are they doing the second time? Sleeping. He goes away. And look what it says in 44. So leaving them again. He went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. And then he came to the disciples and said to them, it doesn't say they were sleeping, but it's really strongly indicated they were. He said, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is what? There's that phrase, at hand. There it is again, at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. And I think for us, sometimes it's sad about our lives that we just, we get so caught up in, do you have bills at your house that you have to pay? Kids got to go to school, there's this thing, there's that thing, and we get so caught up in the mundane of here that we don't live with an expectation that he's coming back. And you know what we do? We sleep, in a sense. Not necessarily physically, but spiritually. We sleep, and we miss the, the call from him that says this, watch, 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 be ready. And so he says three things here about this sense of urgency. One is this, in light of his coming... You be clear-headed. So this phrase here, be self-controlled, in the Greek it means to be calm and collected in spirit. It's to have a sanity of mind. That there's a clarity, there's an understanding of things. He's coming again. There's an accountability about that. And so I've got to live in a certain way. I've got to be calm and collected. It's that idea of not panicking when things kind of get out of the way or we're having to wait longer and we're like, when are you going to come back? When are you going to come back? We continue to be self-controlled and having a clear mind. So not only to say be self-controlled, then he uses the word and be sober-minded. It's the opposite of being drunk. It's that idea of being sober where when you're not sober and you're inebriated, you're not in control of all your thinking and, and your faculties. And so he says, listen, do not become intoxicated by the world. You have a soberness of mind that though you're having to wait and though church you've been having to wait for 2,000 years, you have a self-control about you, not given to the world. You have a soberness of your mind where it doesn't get intoxicated with the ways of the world. This is a call to be free from excess, from passions that aren't right from rashness of our decisions from confusion a lack of self-control there's to be self-control a soberness of mind and for this purpose for the sake of your prayers so what he says the end of all things is at hand therefore be self-controlled, have control, have a clarity of mind, clear thinking. And not only that, don't get intoxicated with the ways of the world as you're waiting for Jesus to return. Don't get caught up in that. So you be sober-minded. And he says this, for this purpose, for the sake of your prayers. <clears throat> you and I know this if you walk with God for a If you and I are worried and worried and worried, do we pray? Often we don't. We try to fix our problem. Now, hopefully, we, we, in our worry, we let it go and we give it to God and we trust Him with it. But what happens a lot of times is prayer is the last thing that we do. 
we kind of think, okay, I'm going to fix this, or I'm going to make a phone call, I'm going to do this thing, I'm going I'm to come up with some principles, and I'm going to follow them, and one, two, three is going to equal this, and it's going to fix my issue, when sometimes what we have to do is we recognize, no, Lord, I can't really do anything about this, and so I'm not going to panic, there's going to be a self-control, there's going to be clarity of my mind, there's going to be a soberness of my mind in the way that I live in holiness, and I'm going to pray, and as I pray, you will communicate and you will bring the deep clarity in regard to things. And so he says, listen, in light of Jesus' coming, self-control, soberness of mind for the sake of your prayers. Staying ready and watchful puts temptation in sight, and praying leads us to fight rightly against the temptation that comes. That's what the three apostles didn't do in the garden of Gethsemane. And when you and I pray, we tap into God's resources and we remove from our thinking that we have the power and the solution to what we face and we do not. Our tendency as humans is to think humanly. So therefore, we have to set that aside and we must call out to Him. And I believe that prayer should be the first spiritual exercise In our lives, the first thing that we go to in our lives, but we struggle and wrestle with being too occupied with the ways of this world. So we are to live in light of His coming. Soberness of mind, a self-control of life, and as we do so, it benefits our prayers. There is a prayer that we do that's not connected to worry and doubt, but there's a confidence that is connected there. Now he says this next. In light of His coming... In verse 8 he says, and above all, here's what I want you to do. I want you to love one another earnestly. Keep loving, but actually he says, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. This phrase, keep loving one another, is a phrase that says this. This is what you're doing in the midst of your persecution. I'm encouraging you to keep doing what you're doing. You are loving one another walking together, maintaining your faith. In other words, you love well. In light of the second coming of Jesus, you love one another well. And he says, above all, that means of high priority within the church, you love one another well. Three ideas with this. Let me just briefly touch on them. Loving one another is a Holy Spirit-produced thing. The fruit of the Spirit is, first one is what? Love. The fruit of the Spirit, the first one, for the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. It is love. This is a Holy Spirit-induced, and it also comes because His love's been put into our hearts. So He says, above all, have this priority. You love one another. You keep doing this. You love one another earnestly. This word earnestly in the Greek means this. It's a picture of a horse. I've never been to a horse race, but I've seen horses run. And you can see the muscles on a horse, how powerful they are. And they're straining and they're stretching. That's the picture. That's what the meaning of this word is in the Greek. It's a picture of a horse straining, giving full effort. <clears throat> and this is connected to loving one another. It's like a horse reaching for the wire, exerting all of its powers and full strength to finish. And that's the call that he says here. He says, listen, above all, You keep on doing this, loving one another with full energy. And here's why. 
because love covers a multitude of sins. Now let me just deal with this just for a moment. This is not saying that loving someone, I think it means this, it means loving someone means to forgive them. It doesn't mean having a blind eye about the reality of, their, of what may be going on in their life. It doesn't mean that we just ignore it, but it means this, that sometimes we have to love each other in spite of one another, right? We have to just, I have to deal with, pers- you know, you have to deal with personality quirks or you have to be- deal with this. And so you love one another in such a way to where you recognize the wrestling and the things that somebody is dealing with and we love anyway. And I think love also means this, that there's, a, there's an aim and a hope toward that that person would be reconciled to God or maybe even reconciled in relationships. And I think there's a, a third aspect of this about this covering sins. Again, it doesn't mean we turn a blind eye to what's there, but it, 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 it allows us to, to love in such a way that hopes for reconciliation. But thirdly, um, loving one another doesn't demand of us that we approve of, spin, of sin, but it just means this, that we recognize that people are going to sin and that there's call upon our lives to love them anyway. And I think love hates to dig up dirt on others and to broadcast it and to let it out. Love means I know about this and I'm going to pray for you and I'm going to care for you so we love well. And then he does this. We're going to have somebody come up here in a moment and give a testimony. And then he says this, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. And the idea here is live your life in such a way where there's an open door that you're willing to open up your home, willing to open up this. And there is a spiritual gift of hospitality. But let me just say this. If you don't have that, that doesn't mean that you don't open up your home and invite other people over. Hello? With me? All of us can offer hospitality. In, In the New Testament church, believers, particularly during persecution under Nero, they were having to flee from places. And Nero's spies were everywhere as he was blaming believers. And so when believers got to towns, instead of going to the hotel, they would, believers in that town or that area, they would open up their home to other believers, even believers they didn't know, and they would allow them to stay there because it was a safe place for them. Hospitality is beautiful. So I've asked Annette Roberts, who is greatly gifted in that. She's going to come up and give a testimony about why hospitality um, is important to her and why, why that's a really key thing for us. And so, Annette, would you come on up? Y'all welcome, Annette. You can stand down there, yeah. Okay.
Thanks for that. Yeah. See, you're just like me. I get to practice with the first service. You're going to be great. You're going to be much calmer in the second service. Yeah. Now, this next point, this was going to be the James and Annette Roberts show. Uh, James woke up this morning and he was sick. So here's the next thing. So, so again, let me, let me just walk through what, what Peter's been doing. In light of the coming of Jesus, Christians, you have to live alert with a sense of urgency. So there's got to be self-control. There's got to be of your life. There's got to be holiness there. There's got to be clear thinking. Above all, you love one another earnestly. You give real intentional love for one another because love bears with and is patient with those who are wrestling with things, wanting to see reconciliation come, not turning a blind eye, but wanting people to, we want to love people in spite of things. And then he says, listen, in light of that, um, we believers have to love each other in such a way that there's an open door policy at our home. Our home does not belong to us. There's a document that the bank owns that we don't own yet, but you know the bank owns it. But it's got our name on there. Eventually, maybe we will own it. But regardless of who owns it, wherever we live, it's not ours. And so we, open, we have an open door policy, and we do so without grumbling. And then he says this, look <clears> at <throat> verse 10, <clears throat> live out your gift. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So listen, if you're a believer today, you've been given a spiritual gift. It could be hospitality, it could be teaching, it could be administration. Whatever the case is, Christ followers in the midst of, in light of the second coming of Jesus, live in such a way to know this, I have been gifted and this gift that's been given to me by the Holy Spirit, I am to use it to serve other people. So if you're not using a gift to help serve other people, you are not using your gift. None of us, if we're not doing that, we're not using our gift rightly. And he also says this, this is a gift. You've received it. You don't get to earn this. It's not an earning thing. But the Spirit gives the gift. It is for the good of others. And there's a responsibility with it. That's why Peter says, as good stewards of God's varied grace. That means this, good steward means I recognize I don't own this. God does. And so I want to use it in such a way that honors him, just like Annette talked about. And I want to do this in such a way that knowing this, that I am going to be answerable to him for the gift that he has given me. On October the 14th, I'm going to be James Roberts for a moment. Just look at me. He's more handsome than I am. (laughs) He would say this to you, October the 14th, We do this twice a year. If you're a member of this church, you should take responsibility of this church and you should serve in some capacity. Everybody in here can stand at that door and greet people. Carl Aber this morning was greeting people everywhere. I don't know what got into him this morning, but he was greeting people everywhere. He's not on the greeter team. Here's what I'm going to say to you. You've been given a gift, whatever it is. On October the 14th, we do a spiritual gift survey. You can find out how you can use your gift in the church. And you should find that out, and you should use your gift. And here's why. If you don't use your gift, everybody else doesn't get the benefit of that. But when you use your gift, the whole church gets the benefit of that. And so just as a body has a hand that does this, and a feet, a foot that does this, and ears that do this, a church is like that. And so there's a call to live, Peter says, in light of the second coming, live out your gifts. 
And as you do this, you're doing all of this. Lastly, this morning, last point, <clears throat> verse 11. So he says this, so whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves in the power or the strength that God supplies. There are three huge, really big things in light of the second coming of Jesus that are the aims of our lives. And the first one is this, we proclaim. So he says this, if anyone speaks, now this is not a preaching gift. This is not, okay, those of you who have the teaching gift, those of you who have the proclamation prophecy gift, Okay, you use your gift. He's saying this. I think he's moved on from the idea of in this. He's saying this. This is how you live your life. You speak. The Greeks and the Romans use this word. Really, the Greeks use this word, oracles, to speak about when their Greek gods would speak. They were the words of the gods. And so there's an authority there. The first century church stole this word, oracles, and they connected with and changed the meaning to say this, we speak the word of God, the oracles, the speaking of God, who is Jesus. We speak, we proclaim the speaking of God. So he says this, all believers do this. Every one of us, this is our responsibility. You, when you speak, you speak the word of God. That means when I teach, this, I have a gift spiritual gift that's been given and so i am to allow that gift to be developed not grounded in my personality now god uses our personalities and stuff but i'm not to infuse the sermon with my thoughts and my things i am to speak the word and so that's why we walk word by word verse by verse sentence by sentence because the responsibility is we speak the oracles of god what god has said Never does anything I say on this, on, a, on this platform, never in a life group, never in the kids' area, do the words that we speak rise to the level of God's Word unless we are speaking His Word. Now, we share our perspective and our learning of things through our English language about this, but our human words never rise to His. And so, we, so Peter's saying, in light of the second coming of Jesus, don't go around just boasting about your thoughts on the Scripture you go around speaking the word. And the word is sufficient to transform the lives of people. So not only that, then he says this. You say the oracles of God. Then he says this. There's practical serving. If anybody serves, they should do so as one in the strength that God provides. You do it. Annette talked about that. Thank you, Annette. She shared that. Sometimes we, I do that too. When I'm complaining, I always know this, that I am not being led by the Spirit. Because we're told, do everything, Philippians 2 is a tough chapter, do everything without complaining or arguing. Everything. Yeah, but what about when that person, yeah, what about when that person does that? Do everything without complaining or arguing. And if you do that, Paul says in Philippians 2, you will shine like the stars in the night sky. You will stand out. You will be unique. Because what does the world do? It complains. It gripes. And so he says, listen, when you serve, you don't do it in your own energy. You do it in the energy that God has supplied. And then he says this, he's the purposes for everything, life's great aims. I speak God's word. I serve in God's power, not my own. And I point everything to him. He's the point of it all. So here's how you close it. In order that in everything... 
God might be glorified through Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so that, he says, to him be all glory, dominion forever and ever. Amen. So the point of it all, why do I speak? Why do I serve? Why do I, why do I live in light of the second coming of Jesus? I want to live in this way because if I will do so, if I will do those things, my prayers will not be hindered. I will speak God's word. I will love one another. I'll be patient and we'll do so in such a way. And ultimately our life speaks to the glory of Jesus. And the glory of Jesus is our aim. We want Him to be glorified in everything. That's why we speak the Word. That's why we serve in His power. So it eventually shows that He's the one who does it. We are... I was talking to, to Mike yesterday. We are all so messed up. Do you know that you're messed up? I know that I am so messed up. And it's amazing that He somehow in the midst of that just does something beautiful with messed up people. Sometimes there's just the messiness that's there and grace enters it. And there's a messy grace that's there where God creates this beautiful thing that He does. And we yield and not make much of ourselves because we want Him to be glorified in everything. So Peter says, live expectant, live self-controlled, sober-minded, love in spite of people's failings. Use the gifts that we have been given. Speak His Word. Serve others. And as we do, He gets the glory. And it's a personal glory. To Him be the glory. It is a positional glory. Dominion. Dominion. Your kingdom come, your will be done on the earth. That's what we want. A dominion. And then it's perpetual. Forever and ever. And Peter just stops in the writing. He's not done yet. And just says, I think I need to say amen here. Amen. God, so be this. So that's how you live in light that the end of all things is at hand. Let's pray.